Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. We are KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and our team is comprised of seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, Matt Lander, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. We're talking clay court season. We're talking French Open. Tom Gullickson's going to join us a little later in the show. We're going to find out from the horse's mouth, Gully being one of the true uh, authorities on American tennis as to what is to be made of no Americans being ranked in the top 30 in the world for the first time in the history of the ATP computer as we head into the 2021 version of Roland Garros. And Johnny... We talked about it behind Matt's back a little bit, how at this time of year, if we're within two weeks of the French Open, we have to refer to him on the show. I think it was written into his contract as three-time French Open champion, Matt's V-Lander. Do you find that off-putting at all, or are you okay with it? Calling him a three-time French Open champion? Well, just champion. Having, having it written into his contract that we have to refer to him as three-time French Open champion, Matt's V-Lander. Is that a problem for you or no? Actually, it isn't. And then how many finals? Ah, good question. Uh, I had two finals. I had uh, uh, I had uh, victory in '82, finals '83, semis '84, victory '85, third round '86. Could have lost to you, Johnny. Finals. <laughs> I would have taken that. Finals I would have taken that. One in '88, quarters '89, and then I think I got first round, first round. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, I don't. I'm not really uh, that keen on that. But what I am keen on is uh, winner of the juniors in '81, oh. winner winner of the men's in '82. Now that's an accomplishment. Okay. It would be tough to beat, and I don't think anyone's ever done that before. The only one I can think of who's done anything similar was Magic Johnson winning a state title senior year of high school, a national championship at Michigan State sophomore year in college and an NBA championship as a rookie in the NBA. So there's a similar – he's almost right there with you, Matt, Magic Johnson. But, you know, as you were talking, uh, Andy, and uh, I'm gonna ask, then I'm going to open it up a little bit. You know what the biggest difference is? Is that we don't have any Americans in the top 30 right now. When I won the French Open in 1982, there were Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, Vitas Gerlides, Gene Mayer, uh, Elliot Telcher, basically in the top 10. None of them clay court specialists. None of them, in fact, nearly not even a threat in the early 80s, right, to us Europeans. So how much easier was it to win in 82 compared to what it is today? With Rafa Nadal is competing against 90% of the men's draw are Europeans, and you all both know what surface they grew up on. I mean, they're all clay court specialists. They really are. And they just now have to adapt to other surfaces because they can't win on clay. And Roger Federer then became a grass court specialist. So, I mean, the difference is just humongous how much easier it was in those days. And now here we go again. 
I'm very humble. But it is true that uh, uh, in those days, there were a few Clakewood specialists, but but not really. And that's why you had so many, you know, Juan Carlos Ferrero, uh, Alberto Costa, Sergi Bruguera, even, even Guga Curtin to a certain extent, even though he was good on other surfaces. I mean, you had some serious Clakewood specialists in those days. And, and now we haven't had that for a while because they can play on all the surfaces, except, of course, Rafa Nadal, who is the Clakewood specialist and an all-court surfaces uh, specialist. I don't know. It's such a big difference. Going back to your feat of um, winning the juniors and then winning the, the men's open, did Becker have anything like that with Wimbledon at 17? Do you know? In the juniors, maybe winning the year before, anything like that? Boris Becker? I don't think so. I don't know. He wasn't good enough uh, the year before. And I think Edberg won juniors. Wimbledon. He might have won a few juniors. Let's see, 1984, Edberg. I think Edberg won. Wow, he might have won three or four of the slams in 1984. Uh, yeah, that's possible. Yeah. Well, as far as Edberg is concerned, Matt, is that as improbable for him to have made a French final as Brian Gottfried based on the styles? Although, in the case of Edberg, he's probably a prohibitive favorite against Michael Chang in 89, whereas Brian Gottfried certainly could not have been considered a favorite against Guillermo Vilas in that final. Edberg was a big favorite against yeah. uh, Michael Chang. Edberg was actually not a bad clay court. I mean, again, you have to remember, Edberg used to, I mean, he grew up on clay, used to run around and hit forehands and have a two-handed backhand before he decided that tennis was no fun like that and changed his style to uh, to one of the best servant volleys of all time. But you know, that Boston tournament on, on Hartrue, of course, Johnny, also Washington tournament on Hartrue, uh, Indianapolis, uh, the U.S. U.S. Claypool Championships on hard trip. North Conway. Exactly. And they all stopped existing, or the last few, in 1987 was the last year. And the reason I know that is that I beat Kent Carlson in Boston in 1987 in the finals, and I beat Kent Carlson in Indianapolis the week after in the finals. And then they realized that they're not going to get McEnroe or Connors uh, and, and certainly, uh, they, I think we're looking already at the juniors being Agassi, Sampras, and they took him away. So Indianapolis became a hard court tournament, and, uh, and Boston became an, an exhibition tournament on hard courts run by IMG. Now, you could s- somehow say that is that when American tennis started tactically going maybe slightly in the other direction, and we're now looking at big serves, Big forehands. Because suddenly comes Pete Sampras, Jim Courier, and then move on. Andy Roddick, John Isner, uh, Sam Querrey, Jack Sock. Uh, and, uh, and they have a very specific style that you couldn't really do on a clay court uh, in a way because you had to sort of learn how to defend a little bit more on a clay court than on a hard court. So I don't know. I think they made a, made a big mistake uh, back then. Those were some brilliant, brilliant tournaments that were very, very important for the uh, American tennis, I believe. Johnny, you lived it. So... I agree. I think I think those tournaments help the Americans understand clay court tennis and developing points. And I think it helped them do better on, on the, that on the red clay surface when they went to Europe. I mean, they just don't have it now. And, and we've talked so much about it that I, I, I do think that it's a it's a big problem. The other thing um, that we had in the winter, you know, there was Philadelphia and Memphis and there were some good indoor tournaments. We don't have that now. And a lot of the Europeans are are very good indoor players because in the winter, that's where they're playing. And so, you know, most, most of the Americans are playing in Florida year round on hard court 
Um, you know, they probably have some clay at Lake Nona, I, I would guess, Andy, but it's just different. They don't have the events now on these surfaces uh, in the U.S., and I think it really hurts us. Well, and Nicholas Pereira made the comment to us, Matt, several weeks back that the great pros are where the great tournaments are, and the tournaments are in Europe, and the tournaments are in South America, and the tournaments are not in the United States. And it's guys like Johnny Levine that have the opportunity to run a big challenger. And whether he does or not, I mean, that'll go a long way toward helping fix American tennis. But no pressure on you, Johnny. Um, and I think it's great that we finally make this point. After all this time that we've been doing the show, 13 months, we've been talking about, you know, American tennis. And here we are for the first time in the inception of the show without a guy in the top 30. And, Matt, you finally may have hit the nail on the head with this thing with, you know, the uh, – the vanishing of clay court events uh, from American soil. And it's probably not a coincidence that we are where we are as a result. But that being said, let's talk about this clay court season and what we've seen because it started out pretty rough for Rafael Nadal. And we start with him because anything clay court related has to. And the first glimpse of him that we saw was with Andre Rublev really kind of putting a beat down on, on Rafa, although it did go three sets. That third set wasn't particularly close, and it really looked like Rublev hit Nadal off the court. And then it seemed like his entire clay court season was almost a, a, a macrocosm, if you will, of his of his game and that he kind of got down a set early on by, let's say, Lube, but then he kind of kept grinding and kept grinding. Finally, he wins a couple of events. He beats Djokovic in the finals, you know, just – just last week, and I think, have we seen enough from Nadal, I'll start with you, Matt, to consider him now, based on this result in Rome, with the win over Djokovic, to be again the prohibitive favorite at Roland Garros? Well, I think that he's proved it to himself. I really feel like Rafa has, over the years, been very uh, truthful and honest about his chances at Roland Garros, and we, uh, the outsiders, uh, and fans and, and people in the media have always said, well, he's, he's too humble and he's actually, you know, it's not cool. He needs to tell, say, tell the world that he's the favorite. But I really think he never, ever really thought. Some years I think he thought, but, but most of the years I don't think he really felt that. And I think this has proven to him because looking at him in Monte Carlo in the first few rounds of Barcelona, I mean, really, it was nearly, and I think you said it, Andy, it was like, am I, am I really watching this? Because he looks like an old man. And he's not moving very well. He looks slow. Uh, his service is completely uh, out of rhythm. And then suddenly he wins these matches. And you look, and I was looking at him in Barcelona, and I'm like, really? Can he really go out there and care that much? What I am surprised over, though, is that the other players, after the Rublev beatdown in Monte Carlo, I'm surprised. And Zverev had some of it going on in Madrid, but I'm a little surprised that Tsitsipas let him off the hook in Barcelona, that these young guys didn't go, okay, that's it. This is the year. How does he beat him? Does he beat him because he's stronger physically? Does he beat him because his forehand is so weird and, and wicked and different that they cannot get used to it? Or is he so smart that we overlook sometimes his, his tactical sense because He's got that whippy forehand and he's lefty, whatever. We, we don't always talk about him. I mean, we do, but not in the same way that we do Federer. We think he's a brute and he, but he, he's sort of violent on the court and he wears people down. I'm not really sure. I'm slightly disappointed in the younger generation, though, throughout the Claypool season, I have to say. Even though Tsitsipas 
I won Monte Carlo, Zverev won in Madrid. I mean, those are great results. I'm still not really sure how, how they're letting Djokovic and Nadal just sort of go through to the finals whenever they want to. I mean, I, I, at what point are they going to stand up and say, hey, guys, that's enough? Johnny, Matt's attributes a lot of what makes Rafa tick to on-court intelligence and I wonder if it's as much that as it is just straight up dogged determination. And in watching you play a lot of the matches that I watched you play in college at the University of Texas, when I knew that there was enough dogged determination in your game to send you out to the Pro Tour and give you a chance to, to do some damage out there, what do you see in Nadal? Is it the, is it the IQ? Is it just this presence of having won all these clay court tournaments, or is this guy just basically a tennis incarnation of Rocky Balboa and he just won't go away? I think he's a freak, Andy. And what I mean by that, when I say that is I don't know other than Jimmy Connors that I've ever seen a player that has achieved what he's achieved and plays like he's on his first year on the tour. Um, The fight and the, 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 the heart and the passion that he plays with. I mean, you're talking about a guy with 20 grand slam titles. He's, you know, and, and for him to win points, it's, it's a grind. This isn't like Federer. So when you think about what it takes for him to, to get through a tournament, like, you know, the Italian open and, and these events and what it's going to take in three out of five in the French and for him to have that will and that, that desire, I totally think he's the favorite. Like I said, last year, for this year's French Open. Obviously, there's there's a handful of guys in there that can win it. I, I'd like to ask Matt's when you look at the the guys in the in the in you know maybe 15 through through 30 or even 10 through 30, is there anyone in there? You know, you have a Batista Agut, you have a uh the guy that beat Djokovic at the US Open. I'm I'm running a blank on his name. Busta. Can a guy like that, can either of those guys, could, could there be a surprise out of nowhere, Matt's, in your opinion, that could, could take a title like the French Open? Or, is it, or, or are we looking at the top six guys and one of those is a sure winner? I think we're looking at the top six guys and, and one of them uh, is a sure winner. I think it's too hard. I think that's why the French Open is tough to win. I think uh, it's not as much as physical as people always thought it was, but I think it's, uh, it's a adapting to the conditions. And I think people don't realize that the French open one day is 85 degrees and it's, it's fast and the balls are bouncing high. And with the spin they put on it today, it plays, it plays like Indian Wells, but it's slippery as hell. Uh, And then suddenly the next day you got a day and it's 65 degrees and it's drizzling and rainy and you might be up there against somebody. And that's what, that's what the, the players are hoping for against Nadal. But after, after he beat up on, on Djokovic uh, in the last year's French Open, I mean, I don't think there's a I – now I'm – I don't know what weather would be better for them. So, no, I don't think so. That's why I think it's so, it's so incredible. It, when you compare Jimmy and, and uh, Rafa, what I find the most interesting, first of all, is that they're both lefties – but they don't really use their they didn't really use their leftiness in any way because none of them could really serve compared to uh, a John McEnroe um, who's obviously left your Goran Ivanisevic. I mean, that's some serious service. Rafa and Jimmy, no. But the one similarity 
that I think that I have to draw between them. And they, and they used them in different ways. But Jimmy was very good at turning a match, uh, uh, the vibe of the match, the chemistry between the players, turning that in his own favor, in his own way. And that could be, you know, there could be a little small talk in the changeovers. Uh, there could be some, some little bit of complaining, a little bit of gamesmanship, whatever. And of course, Rafa, there's no gamesmanship at all unless you think taking 26 seconds between every serve is a little bit of gamesmanship, which I don't think it is, but it does change the way that his, all his opponents play tennis, all of them. Massive, massive advantage in five sets because of the time he takes in between points because it's so hard to win a point and you can never rack up three in a row in sort of, you know, a minute, minute and a half, because that's how long it takes between points. So I think that's where the similarity uh, lies as well with Connors and Nadal. They are such competitors and they turn the field into their arena in different ways, of course. All right, guys, here's what I would like to do, because you maybe kind of look for a guy 10 through 30, Johnny, that might be dangerous. Matt says this thing stays in the top six. I wonder if it even goes six deep. We're going to do a little quick fantasy draft on who, based on what we've seen, during this clay court season, you would pick to win this French Open or to have a chance to maybe make a deep run. And I'll let you start, Johnny. Who's your first pick? You're t- saying to win the tournament? Win the tournament. Well, I'm going with Nadal, no question. All right. Who's um, the number one pick? You don't need to say why we know. Matt, who's two? And the last time I went with Novak and uh, I thought I had a chance. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't want to do this, but I'm agreeing with Johnny. Well, no, you, he's off the board. You got, oh, you can't gone. take Rafa? Can't take, no, can't take the second guy. Johnny's got Rafa. You got the second pick. And Johnny got the first pick because he hasn't won the French Open or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, only, he's only doing one segment, so he gets the he – got, he got Hey, listen, this is, this is a doubles quarter finalist, 1989, with Eric Kruger. Yeah. Don't forget. Oh, boy. I'm going to pick Tsitsipas. You're going to take Tsitsipas too? All right. I mean, I, I have no choice but to take Novak. And I get the next pick because we go backwards. We're doing a snake draft. So Johnny's got Johnny's got Rafa, you've got CC Pass, I've got Djokovic, and then I'll take I'll go out on a limb a little bit and I'll take I just love the way these Italians are playing, so I'll take the big man. I'll take Matteo Berrettini with the fourth pick overall. Matt, who do you have at five? You know, I can't believe uh, that I'm doing this before the other guy, but I'm actually picking Zverev ahead of team. Ooh, okay, so Johnny, that leaves you team if you want him. So Johnny's got the opportunity to have a guy that's been in the finals twice against the guy that's won the thing 13 times. Are you taking team, Johnny? I mean, it's pretty, or no? I'd have to take team over Rublev, but I would say that I believe that Zverev is a better pick than team. That's a good choice, Matt. I like, I like the Zverev, but I'll go with team then next. And you get another pick now because it's a snake, so you get two. So you've got Rafa, you've got team, and then who do you like next? Boy, Medvedev is just not doing anything He's just on that. He's sitting surface. right there. He's sitting there. He's sitting right the there for you. He's in the last, you know the last major you, final. Yeah, it's just a shame that we can't put Federer in that group. But you know what? As crazy as this is, um, I'm gonna go with um I'm gonna go with Rublev. Okay. He had to go somewhere. Medvedev sitting right there for you, Matt. Do you like him? See the next guy? Yeah, no, he's not. Unfortunately, mm. he's not. You know, 
Go I with your boy from Italy, man. I think there's oh, a chance. Geez, I, here we go. I don't think that many players are going to beat Yannick Sinner. Um, I think that Rafa will. Um, I think Novak most probably will. I'm not sure the other guys will beat Yannick Sinner, so I'm going to go with Sinner. I love that pick. So you've got Rublev and then Sinner, and then I'm going to take I'm going to take Medvedev because I have to, and then I'm going to take another I'm going to take another Italian flyer. Musetti. I'm taking Musetti. I'm taking Lorenzo Musetti. I saw some things from him. He's the other great. Night against FAA, he he showed me some hands at the end of that first set. He he had a volley sequence that looked like it was like an Edberg. It was like an Edberg backhand volley followed by like a Sampras forehand volley to like end the set. It was the scary. He was insane off the ground. And then when I saw him come in with those, those hands, I just, I fell in love with the kid right then. So I'll take those. And he beat Corda. He beat Corda today. Corda in three. So yeah. All right. All right. Last two picks in the draft, Matt's. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking here. Um, Christian Godin is still there. Exactly who I was thinking about. Exactly <laughs> who I'm thinking about. I feel like Christian Gurin is sort of the new David Ferrer. Like he's fast. Yeah. He's aggressive. He hits the ball as clean as anything. Of course, there's Diego Schwartzman too. But mm. I think there's there's some air that's uh, he's lost a little bit of, um, of the mojo. Diego Schwartzman. I'm not sure exactly what happened or if the other guys have figured him out or do you have to have a bigger serve to. I don't know. Weird. But I think that Garin is my next pick. I think that Garin has a major in him, actually, uh, before. I think it needs Nadal and these guys need to quit. But once they're gone, I think Garin could be somebody that would pick up the pieces, just like David Ferrer would if, the other, if those guys weren't around. So, Christian Garin. Final pick in the draft, Johnny. I like Rude, but I'm going with Batista Gut. I'm just going with him. I got to put him on the board. solid, wily veteran, a Spaniard. Yeah. Yeah. So one guy that didn't go in our draft, and I wonder if it's because of the fact Fed. well that, obviously, but a guy that squandered a couple of match points and had he beaten Rafa when he had him by the you know what, Denis Shapovalov probably would have had to show up somewhere in this draft based on the type of tennis he was playing against Rafa Matz. Which tournament was that? Was that Barcelona? I can't even remember. Was it a No, that was Italian. That, was that Rome? Oh, was it Rome? I mean, how much do we know about tennis? That was in Rome. Yeah, that was, yeah. was so surprising. It was early. They all run together round. for me. I don't know. First round. Yeah, that's right. No, it's, uh, you know, Felix, Algier Aliasim, Denis Shapovalov. What's happening to these guys? Are they, uh, is it, you know, is it that tough? Are there that many great Claypool players that it's so tough to break through? They are breaking through in a way, but I think we're all thinking that it's taking even them, a little bit of time to break through. As talented as both those guys are, it's taken some time. I mean, what is wrong with them? Why can't they step up and win a major? Are we allowing them another year or not? We will get to that right after the break. We will also talk about whether or not the impressive clay court season that we saw from Ashley Barty has moved her ahead of Naomi Osaka in our minds as the prohibitive favorite to win the French Open. What about Coco Goff? She's clawing and scratching her way into being seated in these tournaments. An incredible heart-stopping win against Kaya Kanepi just the other night from our taping. When we come back, we're going to address all these things. And, Johnny, you're going to stay with us because you need to be a part of this. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com with AZ, Mats, and Johnny, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. 
It is the clay court season, and as a result, we're playing some long points here, but stay with us. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why SquadPod? SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids, being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everybody. The French Open Clay Court Season Edition of KickServeRadio.com. AZ, three-time French champion Mats Vlander, one-time French doubles quarterfinalist Johnny Levine. And Johnny, let's start with you. American tennis is, is part of the conversation right now. And as it pertains to the men, not in a good way, but you've got something that you're holding on to here. So let's let it rip, man. Well, I think we were, were, we've been a little hard on the Americans and, you know, not having uh, one of them be in the top 30, you know, we still can't forget that there's 10 in the top hundred, but, and then we talked and Matt's, we were going through the, the, the clay court tennis and the fact that the Americans haven't done much, but we have to give kudos to Riley Opelka. I mean, come on guys, semi finalist at the Italian open Riley Opelka, seven feet tall, uh, basically, you know, a huge server that that's a tremendous result. I mean, that might end up being, we don't know where his tennis is going to go, but he, he might look back at the end of his career and that could be one of his best results as a pro. 
right here, right now, semifinalist Italian Open with that kind of game. That's very, very impressive. And he happens to be working, I happen to know, with Dr. Jim Lair, who I did a, a segment, a presentation with here in Denver, Colorado, just earlier tonight from this recording. And Riley Opelka's name came up half a dozen times during the presentation. Uh, Dr. Lair is very high on Riley Opelka. His ranking trajectory has gone from, Matt, you would know better than us, 120 to like 35 over a, a pretty short period of time. And Dr. Lair attributes the improvement to um, a smoothing out of his inner voice, saying that his self-talk is becoming more positive. Are you seeing that, Matt, from him? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I actually interviewed Riley at Wimbledon um, a couple, two years ago, maybe, after a big match. And he was really nice, but he was always so hard on himself at times, sometimes when I couldn't figure out why is he so hard on himself and he was a little bit down. And I think that's been, so I completely agree. Let's get back to the question that you posed, Mass, before we went to the break, which is the one about whether or not this big three generation is just going to go off in history. And I, I think that's, I think that's the reality of it as something that we have never seen and will never see again as opposed to the other 97 players in the top 100 just being a disappointing batch of players. I mean, we're seeing some things in other sports. We're seeing Tom Brady win a Super Bowl. We're seeing LeBron James winning NBA championships in his, in his mid-30s and, 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 and still going good. We're seeing athletes in other sports. This is not just a phenomenon in tennis before he got hurt. Obviously, Tiger Woods winning the Masters in 2019. So maybe we are just getting into an age and an era where the wisdom that comes with experience is now finally outweighing the physical skills. We talk about Nadal and we had said at times on the clay, he looked like a tired old version of Rocky Balboa in the 13th, 14th round against Apollo Creed in the first fight. And yet here he is standing there kissing trophies and biting trophies every week, or at least every other week on the clay you would think that these guys would have set a bar that these young guys would have been able to then leapfrog and they just can't seem to clear it. That's, and I, and I don't know, it, history is going to tell us what the answer is to that. I'm not sure. I, I thought this generation was going to, you know, we were going to, we were going to see them take out those guys and, and show us that tennis is, is better at each generation. The level gets better and better and better. And uh, it's not true with the last two generations. Uh, the same generation just keeps improving so much that it, it's, it's tough. But I really thought that Tsitsipas and these guys, they were going to uh, overtake the, the big three um, before the big three rides off into the sunset. Do I want to see it? Not really. Not if the finals is going to look like team and Zverev at the U.S. Open. And I think that's the worrying thing for me is that we ha they had their chance. And what happened? Not a great match. Both of them not uh, uh, dealing with the pressure at all. And one had to win in the end. So, uh, you know, are they qualified to, to threaten these guys in majors? They're not. They're clearly not. Remember Novak Djokovic at the, at the Australian Open? I asked him about these younger guys are taller than you. They're coming after you. And he says, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Uh, they're going to have to work their ass off, Mats. And let's be honest, 
They're not even close. He said this live to me on TV. I'm like, oh, my God. And then, of course, he wins the tournament. Novak's never been short of confidence. I think, Johnny, that if anybody is going to make a dent in the in in the domination of the big three, I was going I would call it the overall sort of emergence of Italian men's tennis, just as a whole. And we really got almost a first glimpse of that in 2019 in Phoenix at the Arizona Tennis Classic when we saw Berrettini. We saw Lorenzo Sonego. We saw uh, uh, the other uh, Caruso. We saw a, a bunch of good young players. I don't know if Sinner was even old enough to be in the draw yet. He's so young. I don't know if Musetti was around, but we started to see glimpses of people going, what is going on with tennis in Italy? Do you think that there's a chance that they are going to continue to infringe on the limelight? I'm not even necessarily talking about winning majors, but is this batch of Italian players, one that has to be viewed as like we used to talk about the Swedish Armada that Mats was a part of or the Spanish Armada with the guys that we talked about a little earlier. This Italian crop looks awfully impressive. Yeah, they're they're really good. And I think, you know, Sinner was actually entered in the event in 20. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, you know, what happened on that, it got canceled. But uh, we were really excited to, to have him. But this group of guys is definitely – um, extremely good. And, 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 you know, center really being one of the guys, him and Musetti, I think are the two that, that could, could be top 10 and that, and they probably will be top 10. I think the other guys, you know, you had Fognini at one point was in the top 10. He's, he's getting up there a little bit. I mean, he's still 29 in the world. He could have a resurgence, but probably not. Um, he probably has seen his better days, but, but he's a f- great fun player to watch. Caruso's played some good tennis. Major is pretty good. Seppi's older now. Sonego, we could hopefully see some good things. But really, when you break it down, there's really just a couple of them, Andy, that 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 really have that top 10 potential. Maybe Sonego, too. Um, it, and it's rare that you have that many Italians. And that that's what's so unique about this this group of guys. And then Berrettini. I mean, he he could end up being in the top five for sure. Um, so it is a lot of fun. There, there, there's some really good guys in there, but I think there's probably, you know, maybe three, four of them. And then the rest of them are a bit, you know, probably going to just hover in, in around, you know, 50 to a hundred. Matt, you've been high on center all along. I mean, you have been a center guy from the outset and is he of all of these Italians, is he the guy that's going to emerge as the best of them all? You know, I'm not really sure. I was a little bit disappointed if you're allowed to be uh, uh, disappointed in somebody as young as him in the finals of Miami when he lost to uh, Hurkac. Right. Uh, I thought that was a massive chance that you cannot let go of when you are as good as Sinner uh, and uh, and you have that chance. I think that was a tournament that he needed to win, and he didn't. And he, he was kind of, kind of making too many unforced errors. He was getting a little bit upset, so... I haven't cooled off on him. I think he's, a, he's exceptionally strong mentally. He moves really well. He's an exceptional ball striker. I do think that he uh, is going to uh, uh, learn and improve for the next two years. But I have a little bit of a worry that he could be another Thomas Burdich uh, situation. That he's so good uh, from the ground, uh, serves well, great forehand, great backhand, moves good enough 
And it's just missing that variety that you need to have over five sets in different uh, conditions and against different players uh, because you can't just ball strike your way through winning majors. That, that's never really ever worked. Uh, and that's, I'm a little bit concerned. And therefore, somebody like Musetti uh, is better. Guys, before we check out of this segment, and we got Tom Gullickson coming on next, and we are going to talk, we're going to get under the hood. We're going to do a serious drill down with what's going on with American tennis. But we got to talk about the women's game because it was called into question as to whether or not her number one ranking was deserved. I'm talking about Ash Barty. And yet we've seen her go out there, quadriceps bandage, arm sleeve, you know, finally had to retire at the end of, uh, of the most recent uh, tournament, but a clay court record. Uh, that we have not seen from a lot of women. And, and to be the number one player in the world and to play that many back-to-back-to-back-to-back tournaments leading up to the French, I felt was a hell of an effort on her part. Is she really feeling the pressure to substantiate that number one ranking in the world? And has she done so over this clay court season, Matts? I think she has, and I think she's just... Um... Obviously, she overplayed a little bit, but I think this is part of the plan. I think she wanted and needed to get out there. She needed to toughen up, so to speak, because she's been home in Australia for about 12 months. Uh, and, uh, and I think she felt that she needed to toughen up and get on the road and play a bunch of matches and, and, uh, and sort of overcome that, that weakness mentally that she has in her backhand side. And realizing I don't need a great two-handed backhand uh, to win on any surface, not even on clay. And she's proven that. So I think that she she needed to get beaten up a little bit and uh, and take some time off, which is what she's doing now. Uh, and she's going to be so ready. But I'm not looking to her uh, at the French Open as much. I mean, she has a really good chance to 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 win again for sure. I think the players like Sabalenka, even Coco Goff, I think they're very dangerous. I'm looking for Ash Barty at Wimbledon. I think Wimbledon has always been the big, the big dream for, for the Australians, obviously. And I think Ash Barty's got the perfect grass court game. I'm surprised her first win came at, 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 uh, at the French Open. So, yeah, but she's number one in the world. I mean, she really is number one in the world because she's so complete. She's, she's great. But uh, you mentioned Coco Goff, Andy. Go along there. What, what, what do you think? She did some good things lately. Well, I, I, I think that she's clawing and she's scrapping and I mean every set of tennis that I watch her play is an adventure and it's gut churning and it's just nothing is easy for this girl this isn't like some you know Mats Vlander winning the French at 17 with no problem and beating Vlas and beating Lendl and all of a sudden she's winning a major oh no 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 this girl's having to really work for it and really earn it I mean that match against Kanepi was just absolutely gut-wrenching seven six five one up ends up she's down five six in the second and down two four in the breaker but then Kanepi throws in a, a couple of double faults and the next thing you know Goff wins that one so she's having to earn everything that she's that she's getting right now and I think it's going to bode well for her as she gets older but the name and I'll ask you Johnny that Matt's didn't mention among his small handful of favorites at the French I mean, who beats Carolina Pliskova love and love in a final and she's won the French and doesn't get a mention, but Iga Svatek, I mean, 0-0 over Pliskova in a clay court final. Are you kidding me? That's what I was going to just bring up. I mean, she's, to, in my opinion, um, Svatek has got to be the favorite to win the French Open. I mean, the, the, 
that match that she played in that final and, and basically all week, but to, to win a final of a major tournament like that, right. not a grand slam, but a, 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 a Italian open love and love against a tremendous player. Pliskova was playing great tennis all week that, and then, you know, she's the defending champion. So I, I, I believe that she is the favorite. I also have a feeling that Ash Barty um, who was beating golf at the, the, I, was it the, I don't, it was the tournament, it was the tournament after the Italian open just, just recently she was up a set and, and up in the second set and there was some rain and a little delay. And then she ended up retiring. I think she, I think she might be saving herself for the French open. And I think that she probably just felt that, you know, I'm, I'm maybe tweak something and I'm going to, I'm going to sit this out and, and get ready. So I think you have to, also put Barty as one of the main favorites. I think I think Barty has uh, been playing great tennis, and and um, she she's a champion, and and I think she's used to that that stage. And I think you, I think she's definitely you know maybe maybe the favorite along with Sviatek to win it. Last word, Matts. Better chance of winning the French, Naomi Osaka or Serena Williams. Wow. <laughs> Got him, Johnny. I got him. You sure did. That is a great question. Wow, that's a good one. It is a good one. Yeah, I think Serena Williams. Wow, I do. Why? I think she wants to win the French Open. I'm not sure Naomi Osaka wants to stay there for two weeks grinding it out on the clay court because I've never seen her do it. I've seen Serena do it a bunch of times, and uh, I think Serena wants to, needs to. I'm not sure Osaka needs to win the French Open in anytime soon. I think she wants to win big tournaments, and I don't, I don't see the drive to improve her clay court game so far anyway uh, of what I've seen of her clay court tennis. So I'm going to go with Serena Williams there. I think Serena is going to be a threat at Wimbledon, not at the French, but I think at Wimbledon, I think Serena is on to something. I like that she's playing. She played that extra tournament after the Italian Open, and I think Serena has a good has a good summer uh, ahead of her. Maybe not the French Open, but the next two majors. He's Mats Vlander, three-time French Open men's singles champion, 82, 85, 88. The following year, 89, Johnny Levine would team with Eric Carita to make the quarterfinals of the doubles at the French. It is the clay court season. This is kickserveradio.com. It was in 1989. You're flashing your hands. What year was it, Johnny? 88? 88. Oh, it was 88. So the same year Matt's won the singles, you were hanging around that whole second week playing doubles. That's it. All right. That's it. All right. Very good. When we come back, we will be joined by former American Davis Cup captain. He was the guy on the other side of the net when John McEnroe went ballistic at Wimbledon saying, you cannot be serious. Of course, I speak of Tom Gullickson. He joins us next on kickserveradio.com part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm out of breath. Don't go away. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis, And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. 
They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we are back. Uh, as promised, Matt, we've tiptoed around the subject. We let everybody know that we were going to bring one of the ultimate authorities on American tennis. And here he is. Tom Gullickson finally joins us uh, for the final segment of the show. And first of all, Tom, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing? Uh, my pleasure, Andy. Always good talking to you. And Love seeing young Mats Willander. He looks younger every year. <laughs> he loves hearing that. Tom, you've been around American tennis as a player, as a coach, as a Davis Cup captain, as an Olympic team captain, and I doubt you've ever seen a situation like the one we're in now because it hasn't existed. There's no American players ranked in the top 30 in the world. Let's cut right to the chase. In your opinion, how dire of a situation is this, or is this just a couple of bad weeks on the rankings? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, kind of been a trend for a while. When uh, late twin brother Tim, in 1979, he was ranked uh, 18 in the world on the ATP computer at the end of that year, and he was 11 in the U.S., and he wasn't, uh, wasn't even in the top 10 in the U.S., and he was 18 in the world. So, uh, you know, we had uh, a great era of great American tennis players and uh, at a certain kind of brand or a style, if you will, of uh, when you played an American player, you knew what you're going to get. You had an aggressive style player, a good competitor, very fit, usually a very good serve, uh, fight you to the last point. You know, there was a certain style about, you know, playing an American player. That was fairly intimidating for a lot of players from other parts of the world. Tom, it's, it is true that um, there is a, still a style, I think, with American tennis, which is big serve and big forehand. Uh, mm-hmm. And it works to a certain degree. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Riley Opelka and John Isner are maybe the two biggest serves in the games, and they have huge forehands. But is, is, that, is, is that what makes it a little too simple to play against? Is there something that, that um, you see that American tennis has done? Is it because of Andy Roddick? Is it Jim Courier? Where is that coming from? Well, I, I think when you look at men's tennis in general, not just American tennis, I mean, you look at two of the greatest players of all time, you know, Nadal and uh, Federer, and their surplus ones are amazing. Yeah. And they also move really well, and they defend really well. I think 
you know, American players typically aren't as willing to play defense and aren't as willing to kind of grind and suffer a little bit. And I think when you look at the great, great players uh, like Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, you know, you see guys who uh, have very good offense and they obviously love to play offense. I mean, how many people want to get run around a court for five hours? So, you know, they, but they're willing to defend and, and they have good slice backhands. They, they have good sense of kind of hitting higher, heavier balls when they're not in position. And I, I think, you know, I think our American players are kind of offensive oriented and they don't defend that well. The ability to defend, the ability to, to play offense and kind of knowing when to kind of switch gears and when to say, okay, I'm just going to grind, grind out some points and just be solid or, yeah, I'm going to be looking for, you know, for more balls to attack. I mean, that kind of nice blend of offense and defense, I, I don't see that as much from our players. Tom, you know, we, we, we look at, at, at American players as, um, as being, you know, somewhat of, of a one-trick pony situation with this big serve, big forehand. And we look at the way college tennis has evolved. And, you know, Mac played a year at Stanford. Jimmy Connors even played some college tennis. Obviously, you and Tim at Northern Illinois, the NCAA championships are going on right now. I'd like to throw in my Texas Longhorns win over SC. Well, That's beside the win. point. But it, the fact that they've sort of de-emphasized the doubles, and now it's it's not just is it just one point out of three matches, but now they don't even play a pro set anymore. They play one set, and we're talking about how so many of these American players are are not multidimensional players, and has the the devaluation or the the lack of emphasizing doubles actually hurt players with regard to the development of their singles game. Yeah, I, I've always been a big fan of doubles. Uh, I think when you look at the junior tournaments, Andy, I know you know a lot about the junior tour, and you know they've de-emphasized doubles, um, which is a pity. I think when you when you watch the kids play doubles in the juniors, you see smiles, you see high fives, you see them having fun, you know, and then all the pressures on the singles and. You know, the parents are looking up the UTR of the opponent and, and, you know, it's all this pressure. Oh my God, this guy's one point UTR higher than my kid. I mean, I got no chance. And, and, but then you see the doubles and they're having fun and, and, you know, doubles can be a developmental tool. You learn how to come in to volley and you only have to play half the court. So there's a certain safety of coming in in doubles, knowing you only have to defend half the court. Uh, you, you learn how to hit nice angles and top spin lobs and all those shots that Willander and Nystrom used to hit against my twin brother, Tim and I all the time, <laughs> annoying as hell, the angle dippers and then the top spin lob to drive us nuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. We used to have <laughs> great matches, Tom. I, I miss yeah. your brother dearly. We used to have uh, great matches and great evenings. Uh, with you guys and great uh, golf games as well. So yeah, it was a it was a beautiful time back in the eighties, Tom. I know you played some in the seventies too, but right. but how about the mindset of American players? Do you think that somebody like Raleigh now he's number one uh, in, in America, which is an amazing achievement? Is there a drive there within him that says I have no interest at all in where I'm ranked in America? And are these guys Fritz and Tiafo and Tommy Paul and Riley? Are they ready to go? Do they want to go? Do they need to go to the top of 
the world ranking rather than just sort of uh, spearheading American tennis? You know, I would hope so, Matt. You know, the, the answer would be I would certainly hope that what you just said is true and, and maybe comes true. I think, you know, I would certainly hope that, that Riley and, and Taylor and these guys have great expectations much more than, you know, being the number one American, which really doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, let's, let's do some damage in the slams. Let's get into the second week in the slams. Let's get to the semis or finals of a slam. I mean, it's all about, you know, going deep into the second week of a grand slam, but first you've got to get through the first week. And, you know, I, I sense, some of our guys, you know, you know, they have good wins and they're almost like happy that they've gotten one good win. You know, there's a lot that goes into winning te- tennis matches. And I think one of the great things that uh, Timmy did for Sampras was I remember one time Pete told Tim, he said, on the days where I'm not striking the ball clean or not feeling my strokes at all, I almost accept losing on that day. And Tim said, well, Pete, as long as I'm your coach, that's not acceptable. Tim got up to 15 in the world without a lot of shots, but he grabbed Pete by the collar. He happened to have a white collar on, like a white collar T-shirt. He grabbed Pete by the collar. He goes, pistol. He said, take that Palos Verdes white collar off, put your blue collar on, and go to work. On the days where you're not striking the ball well, beat the guy being an athlete and a competitor. He said, Pete, you're one of the top three athletes on the tour. You can run, you can jump. You got amazing hands. You can hit every shot in the book. So on the days that you're not feeling it, beat the guy being an athlete and a competitor. And I think that element right there kind of sums up kind of where American tennis is. We're not tough enough. Bottom line. Tom, when we look back uh, on on some of your great moments in American tennis history, you got the All-American Wimbledon doubles final in 83, you and Timmy against Mack and Fleming. Uh, What a great, you know, what a a great testament to American doubles at that that point in time. Obviously, you had the opportunity to coach the American Olympic team and watch Andre win the gold medal in Atlanta, but getting back to Pete Sampras in 95 and what you just said about what your brother Tim said to him, has there ever been a gutsier performance that you have ever been a part of than what you watched Pete Sampras do on Russian soil, on clay, than in that Davis Cup final where he put our country on his back and and got you a Davis Cup title as a captain? No, that was, uh, you know, really a, a, a you know, a not well-covered event. I mean, Pete, you know, won all three points. You know, he won the doubles with Todd Martin. And uh, in match one, they played match one, and he played Chestnikov, who was a great clay court player. He could run like a deer and not miss a ball for like five hours. He really had to beat Chesney. He was never going to beat himself. And Sampras won in four and a half hours. And on match point, He'd come to the net like three different times, and then the point was reset. Then finally, he hits like a forehand approach. He's kind of running into volley, and Chesney finally couldn't run down that last ball. So Pete kind of lifts his arms in triumph like this, 
and he gets full body cramps and he's writhing around the court in full body cramps and me and the chef and the stringer and the sports psychologist, you know, we all go out there and lift him up like a Roman gladiator and carry him into the locker room. <laughs> and our, our team doctor put like two bags of IV fluid in him right there at the Olympic stadium in the locker room. So he went six, two, six, four. And then the third set, he was getting tired and, and they got to a tiebreaker, a match point. He hits a 130 down the, down the TAs for us to win the cup. So, yeah, amazing effort from Pete. And he really never got much credit for it. But it was one of the greatest efforts in Davis Cup finals history for sure. So what happened to American tennis, do you think? What was the effect of Sampras, Courier, Agassi, Chang, and Todd Martin? Was it too good to be true? Does it? make parents and coaches think that you should specialize in tennis too young because we all want to play tennis now. It's such a cool sport. And look, American have a success. What happens? Like, why did, what, 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 why are the effects like that? Because we have the same in Germany, the same in Sweden, and even in Australia, you have that effect. What is that? That's a, that's a really great question. I wish I was smart enough to answer it, but uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think there's just so many options now for Americans. Uh, you know, when you look at the popularity of, of different kind of professional sports, you know, tennis is barely on the radar in America compared to football and basketball and, and, and baseball. And, you know, what would happen if you would have given LeBron James a tennis racket when he was eight years old, you know, growing up in Ohio? Here, here's a tennis racket and here's a really good coach to give you lessons and teach you the fundamentals and, and get you coming to the net and ser- playing serve and volley, you know? I mean, you know, who knows? I, we're still not recruiting the best athletes in this country to play tennis, and I'm with you. I, I'm a big fan. I, you know, Tim and I grew up playing every sport. We played basketball all the way through high school, and even one year in college we played on the freshman team in college. And, and you see, you know, you Europeans are always good at, you know, I know the Swedes love ice hockey. You played ice hockey, you played soccer, you know, and, you know, a lot of the other Nadal, I heard could have been a professional soccer player if he wanted to be. Uh, so in Murray, I've heard Murray talk about playing sports when he was younger. And I think it's, it's a good play. Yeah. I think early specialization to me kind of leads to burnout. And, and I think, you know, there's a long list, certainly in the U.S., and we've studied this a little bit at, when I was with the USTA, of people who won, you know, gold balls in the 12 and under. By the time they're in the 18 and under, half of them aren't even playing anymore. One of the things I try to do when I'm doing my little tennis consulting here at Midtown Athletic Club in Chicago, talking to these junior parents, I said, listen, however old your child, your son or daughter is now, between the age of, say, say he's 11 or she's 11, it really matters how they're playing when they're 7, 18. It doesn't matter how they play in the 12 and under. From whenever they start to the age of 12, you know, you have some fun. They got to have some fun when they're playing. Play a little doubles but learn the fundamentals. Kind of, for me, a relentless pursuit of really good fundamentals so they have a great foundation. You know, I, I uh, you know, I think – a lot of our players too have, have too many deficiencies. Like, you know, I think 
like Taylor Fritz, for example, I don't think he defends that well, and he certainly doesn't transition that well. And I've actually heard Federer in an interview say, because somebody asked him, like, some great interviewer like Andy, you know, said something like, like, uh, you know, why aren't these young guys beating you guys? You're all kind of in your mid to late 30s. Why aren't these next-gen guys beating you? And Roger said, listen, these guys don't have any transition game. They can't – they all serve big. They all hit the ball really beautifully from the back. They move well, but, you know, they can't come to the net and finish points at the net. And, you know, and that's so true. You look at Zareb, you look at guys like that who just don't have any transition skills. Because they are at the same age, uh, Riley and Taylor and Tommy and Francis, I think that's a good thing in a way, because I feel like one of them breaks through and one of them decides to work on the things that you're talking about, Gully. Like, I to learn how to do everything. And that might spark a fire into the other guys and say, well, hold on a second. He's having success, Riley, now on clay. Right. What am I doing? I'm beating Riley on clay all the time. What the hell am I not? You know, I think that, that they could help each other. But I do agree that they one of them needs to kind of separate themselves and, and go the the what you might call it, the more complete player route. Right. But I feel like they're in the, they're the same age. And that's why, Andy, I was telling you that I don't think it's, I think it's more of a, it's not a crisis. I, I think it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation with the ranking. Maybe they should talk about scheduling, maybe play the right tournaments. Maybe that's why they're not up there. But I feel like they're all better than uh, uh, sort of, or they should all be top 30, but they are together. They should be like a team. This is a team USA coming. And, and we should be afraid of them. They should be intimidating with their fighting spirit and then also the all-round game. That should be a thing. Oh, my God, I'm playing an American, one of the kids in America. They're tough. You know what I mean? It's not the case. Right. No, and I, I agree with you 100%, Matt. And these guys are 22, 23 now. So and they've been out playing for five years because they didn't go to college. And everybody thinks they're old and gray and starting to get gray hair like me. But, you know, they're only 23 years old. If they had gone to college, they'd be just getting started. So, you know, they, they've gone to the school of hard knocks, uh, you know, through the Challenger Tour and, and, the, and, and the 250s and 500s, you know, grinding wins in those events and, and hopefully doing a little more damage in the Master Series thousands and the slams. You know, but hopefully that's kind of a progression now. And, and hopefully not only Riley will, will be inspired by that Rome result. We want inspiration from that result, you know, not complacency. And, you know, that should inspire Riley to greater things. And that hopefully, like Matt said, that that'll uh, inspire his buddies. Like a, a rising, rising tide lifts all the boats in the harbor, and hopefully that'll be the impetus to do something like that. Before we let you go, Tom, obviously the one name that hasn't come up, and I know you've mentioned it before in the show, Matt, is Sebastian Corda. Let's not leave him out of this crop of young, promising Americans. And then, Tom, in a previous conversation you and I had, you mentioned, you know, here's here's a real problem when you got a kid like Bjorn Fertangelo who wins the French juniors over Dominic Team. And then yet, what trajectories have their pro careers gone? So to Matt's point, what is breaking down? But before we let you go, and I really appreciate it, Matt and I both do, if, if American tennis players could just study what went right with 
the career of Mats Vlander. What could they take away from that that they could add to these these big monster weapons that Mats, by his own admission, was not a monster server or a you know a monster ground stroke or anything that was monstrous, but he was monstrous between the ears. What's the lesson there? Well, I think Mats, for me, was a, a, a beautiful all-court player. He mentally, he was so tough. He had he moved great. He had great balance. He also was a great uh, decision maker on the court and great problem solver. And he really understood how to play tennis. I think in America, we play tennis stroke too much. We're very obsessed with technique and, and whatever. And so we end up playing tennis stroke instead of playing tennis. And, and Mats, to me, was one of the ultimate competitors. And he did continue to kind of grow his game. And I, I remember he started beating Lendl because he started going to the net more. And maybe because you and Yoki played some really good doubles together when you wanted to play and you kind of enjoyed playing little doubles. And that kind of helped, you know, your serve. It helped your, your net game, which you didn't really have when you won the French the first time. You developed all those, all those shots, you know, and that, you know, a little more aggressive style of play that helped you, uh, you know, win the Open that year. So, you know, I think that's the lesson is to continue to get better, continue to improve, never be satisfied. You know, you don't want to panic, you know, so you, but you feel that sense of urgency, but have a plan, have a plan with how you're going to keep improving and, and, and never be satisfied with where you are. Always keep striving to get better. And, and that's what you see all the great players do from every era, virtually. Tom, your body of work has amounted to you being one of the great contributors in the history of American tennis. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the state of American tennis. And we thank you for the fact that you're still involved in American tennis to the, to the extent that you are, your influence um, and your brothers is still, is still part of the American fabric of our sport. So thanks for all that you've done over all these years and all that you continue to do. We really appreciate it. And for taking thanks, the time Andy. to join us. Yeah. Great to see you. Great to see you, Matt. Tom, thank you. What a pleasure. So nice yeah. to see you. And uh, yeah, work on your golf game because I'm coming after you. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm... Anytime you're in Chicago, man, I, I'm ready for you. I'm sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. Thanks so much. This is KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden. Matt's Vlander, Johnny Levine, our very special guest, has been the great Tom Gullickson. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to much more in a huge summer of 2021.